I did an Ironman race in 2018, and I think in the end, actually, I failed there, kind of doing like an optimal training. Uh -huh. And yeah, and that, well, in the end, it was diagnosed that overtraining syndrome. I was actually really scared in the beginning because, I mean, I, I didn't know. Practically, what you're sharing is that you experienced a burnout. There's this principle that boys don't cry. Uh, from that comes that also leaders don't cry. Leaders mm -hmm. don't, they are like fortress always on the top yeah. level. Yeah. Uh, if they need to cry, go somewhere alone. <laughs> don't, mm. don't share any vulnerabilities with your yeah. team. Welcome to Inner Power Particles. I'm Farhat, the host of the podcast. We talk with entrepreneurs and leaders about how they have solved the challenges in their life or business and how it has transformed into new inner strength in them. And with this, we want to help that you also can look at your life or business situations and see how you can solve the challenges in them and through that transform them also into new inner strengths, inner power particles in you. Enjoy the show. Uh, Vila, thank you for agreeing to meet and uh, share your experiences with me. Thank uh, you, Farhad, for inviting me. Uh, could you, uh, just to warm up, share uh, what's your age at the moment and what, what are you doing in your life, now, in your professional life? Hmm. Yes, so uh, my name is Vila Simola. I'm 38 years old at the moment. And um, regarding my professional life, then uh, I'm currently the CEO of uh, Maria01. We are the, the largest startup campus in Nordics. So I've been leading a company and the community of 1,500 people now for a bit over four years. And so that's mostly taking my time in the professional side. And then I'm also in the board, for example, for one company and maybe some small side projects, but that's in a nutshell. Okay. Before we met, I also asked you some questions in writing to get to know you better. And there I was fascinated, fascinated to find out that you have completed Ironman. Uh, when was it? Uh, how many years ago? I did an Ironman race in 2018, so it's already five years ago. Oh, okay. To put it in perspective, this means it was before you joined Maria01. What were you doing at that time in the professional life? Yes, yes. That was uh, a little bit before that. So uh, before actually coming to Maria01, I was working for uh, a larger company, basically kind of setting up uh, startup methodology, kind of like agile way of doing things and building new businesses. So yeah, that's what I did before coming here. And then before that, I was very engaged also with the startup uh, ecosystem. So I was doing a healthcare startup. And then before that, I was running Startup Sauna, which is the first startup accelerator in Finland that we, we set up in uh, 2010. Okay, so I hear these keywords, uh, startups, you mentioned quite often, and, mm. and also now leading the community of startups in Maria01. Mm -hmm. uh, and we will return to that, but I will want to explore a bit more the Ironman, because this is something mm. that uh, stood out for me when reading your yeah. uh, res response to my questions. So could you put us in the last few minutes when the race was uh, approaching its end? Mm. You are there. What are you experiencing? What are you thinking? What are you feeling mm. when this is mm. happening? Mm. Well, I mean, Ironman is such a long race. For me, it, I think it took a bit uh, over 12 hours to complete. So you will have a lot of different uh, moments during the race, a lot of different feelings. 
if I think about the end of the race, I would say when you passed, I would say half of the running part, then I think there's starting to be this feeling of almost feeling of accomplishment. So you know that you will most likely make it. When you are past the half, yeah? At least for me, at least for me. Yeah. And kind of the last moments then, you know, I feel this joy that, you know, I've, I've made it. And, and, uh, and kind of, you know that, okay, I will make it till the end. So, I mean, definitely it's a good feeling in the end. Of course, your body is, is exhausted, but you will not feel that. Because in the race, the adrenaline that you have there is just like pushing you forward there. Yeah, but I had a lot of good memories there when kind of coming to the finishing line that was in Tallinn, actually, the race. Mm-hmm. And I remember when the announcer was announcing the names. So they said my name and then they said that you are an Ironman. So that's part of the concept. But I think it's really nicely how they've done it. So they really make you feel in the end that you know you're something special you're an iron man so mm-hmm. yeah that yeah. was my experience there i know you've been in sports uh, since early age but what what brought you the thought of okay i want to go to iron man that's a good question i think you know many others have asked that as well i think actually somehow i got the idea already seeded when i was I think approximately 10 years old. That was the first time when there was actually one Finnish, uh, like an Ironman triathlonist called Pauli Kiuru. And I remember watching these sport broadcasts where they filmed him and were interviewing him. And he was actually doing really well. He was, I think he placed uh, in top three for multiple times in the Hawaii race. And I think that was the moment when I kind of felt that there's something very exciting about that specific sports. And I think sort of like from there, it kind of stuck in my head that, you know, this is something interesting. Then I was actually playing football for a long time and then I turned into a referee later on. So that kind of took most of my time when it comes to doing sports. But when I retired from, from football and the refereeing part, there was like this kind of emptiness, I would say, because, you know, when, once you've done sports for such a long time and then suddenly you don't really have like a goal, then I, I felt that I need to find something. And then after that, I think it was kind of, it just kind of came from there that, you know, now it will be a good time for triathlon. And I, I had a background, of course, running has been a strong one for me, yeah. but thinking about cycling, you know, I was like any other normal cyclist out there. I haven't done any racing with triathlon bike or anything, even road bike. And then for swimming, I, I didn't know how to do freestyle swimming. So I basically started from scratch uh, doing that. So, so yeah, and in the end, I, th- I think it was also really you know, challenging yourself for something unknown. Because, yeah, and yeah, that's a long answer, but I think those things, then kind of pieces came together and then I decided that I will try it out. I know one more person in my network who, who has done it, and he told that he took a whole year off from his work and business mm. to prepare for it. How did you approach it? How did mm. you combine it or not combine it with your work? Mm. Yeah, I wish I would have had the poss- possibility to do it that way, because you know that requires a lot of time and dedication for training. So I was working full-time, and then 
doing trainings sometimes in the morning before going to work and then some of the trainings after work especially the group training parts yeah so i was combining both individual training as well as uh, group training yeah but i mean i must say it was very hard to kind of fit that all into a calendar and, and try to kind of maintain a sort of planned training rhythm and i think in the end actually i failed there in kind of doing like an optimal training. How, how long was your training? I set up a, a three-year target. So oh. when I started doing triathlon, that was in 2015. And then I did the race in 2018 summer. So I had three years, actually three and a half years kind of training yeah. for, for, for that race. Yeah. So for three years you prepare, mm. then 12 hours you are in it, you mm. complete it. Mm. What then? What did it bring to you? Mm. I think, you know, once completing that, of course, a very good feeling, uh, kind of feeling of accomplishment, you know, I did it. But also a bit of emptiness. So, like, now I've done it, what's next, basically? And then if I really go, you know, weeks after the race, then I think it was maybe one week after, but I started to experience, like, these different kinds of symptoms in my body basically you know numbness and headaches and things like that and yeah and then well in the end it was you know diagnosed as an overtraining syndrome but I think that was you know that was something that was obviously caused by by training and not training like the optimal way you know not balancing the kind of physical and mental stress into going to the race so in the end that kind of led me to not continue triathlon after I uh, had done uh, the race. Can you explain for us who don't know what it is, what is this overtraining syn- syndrome? How do you experience it? What does it mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so basically overtraining syndrome, yeah, with the knowledge I have, it's a combination of like mental and physical stress. So basically you push your body to the limits too much to recover. So not enough recovery during the training phase also contributes to it. Yeah, yeah. and in, in my example is is because when you you're training, let's say, you know, 15 hours a week uh, for the race, then you should balance the training so that most of the trainings are on the baseline level, and then only certain trainings will will go into the the, the high zones. But because I was really having difficulties combining work and training, so I needed to cut off. In, in, in certain trainings and I did it the wrong way so I started to kind of cut down from the baseline training which obviously mean that then a big part of my training sessions were pushing almost pushing it to the limit so I think that definitely affected but yeah in the end when when you know you have overtraining then basically it means that your nervous system is does not detect whether you're resting or whether you're in active mode but your like nervous system is confused so basically you know that's something that causes for example when you you know when you try to go for a run for example like your heart rate will go immediately to the maximum because your body doesn't understand whether this is easy training or or not Uh okay and how did you experience it what were the implications for you Mm. for your life when you got this Mm. Yeah, the first 
symptoms. Of course, I was actually really scared in the beginning because, I mean, I, I didn't know. It was the kind of, the symptoms were really strange. Like I said, there was like numbness that could be in my hand or in my face and all these kind of headaches and then difficulties in sleeping and all these things. So that was a very scary time because I didn't know and nobody really knew what's going on. And so I had a lot of tests and, and went to the doctor and pretty much nobody found nothing until I actually went to a sports, kind of sports specialized doctor. And there's this kind of training facility here in Helsinki. So I had done some of the tests there previously, kind of testing my maximum levels. So I had the baseline data in their system. And then when I went there, then the doctor said, okay, let's do this maximum test for you and let's see. And that was the time when it was easy to discover from the results that kind of all my results had dropped from top to down, which is usually direct indication of overtraining causing that. So that was kind of when I got the diagnosis and I think that was a relieving moment. So then I really, I knew what is going on. Before that, I didn't know. And yeah, basically he was then the first one to give me proper instructions how to start recovering from that. But yeah, I must say I got a pretty severe one. So it actually took year, year and a half to kind of fully recover from, from that. So three years preparing. Yeah. And then more than a year to recover from mm. this. Four years in total. And then during this recovery time, headaches mm. and numbness, this is affecting also how you can perform at work most probably. How for was sure. it for you? Can for you sure. share a bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was extremely difficult. Um, but did you work or you took some... I did. I did work the whole time. I remember when I was getting the first symptoms and I was also very tired. So I was almost falling asleep during a meeting and, and things like that. So I told the doctor that, hey, I don't feel I'm in full capacity. Could I have some sick leave? And then I think I got maybe one week. So that was that was all I got. So I was working full time and definitely it wasn't easy. But then sort of tried to balance in my capacity what I could do. And then when I got the instructions on the recovery part and what to do, then it started to you know, slowly improve also on the ability on the, on the work side as well. But I must say it was super difficult to be at your best when your health is not in the normal mode. So practically what you're sharing is that you experienced a burnout. Uh, this was a burnout coming from the physical overload. Mm. Uh, and then uh, you, throughout the whole period of burnout, you kept working because there for mm. any reason you, you couldn't do yeah. otherwise. Yeah. And then uh, you got instructions how to work on your recovery. Mm. Yeah. Uh, can you share a bit uh, what were the, those and are they also applicable for those who mm. experience so-called mental uh, mm. burnout from overworking? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me and for the kind of thinking about the overtraining, it was like trying to do activities that will stimulate the nervous system what is normal. So in practice, meaning really easy walking, really easy walking constantly, basically. Different breathing exercises. Uh, I started to do a lot of yoga, uh, mindfulness as well. And then, of course, kind of cutting down things you know, from your food or what you drink that could kind of activate the nervous system. So, for example, I cut down coffee for a year. I cut down all the alcohol for a year. Doing really a lot of small things there. That was, at least for me, the way to recover. So there's not like one, one magic pill that you can take to recover. And then, and then I think the important part there is, is, of course, your mind. How do you think about the situation and really 
being patient there. You know, there are moments, whether it's an overtraining or burnout, where you get anxious about the situation and where you're at, like, believing that this will, this will be better if you just remain patient and do the right things. Yeah, so you very well said that there's no magic pill. There's this combination of many, many small mm. steps and mm. daily regular steps, as I understand. Yeah. yeah. And patience, and you also mentioned hope. So how was it? Like I assume one month passes, two, three, and mm. okay, when I gonna recover? Mm. Uh, how did you feel regards the hope that, mm. that it will come back, trusting, or were there also some dark days? So can you? Mm. Yeah, share yeah. a bit. How yeah. was it for you mentally this period? Yeah, yeah I think you know, the toughest period for sure was when I was getting the symptoms and not having a diagnosis for that. Oh. Th- that was a very very dark period because you didn't know. So that that lasted for, I think, two or three months, and then after that, getting the diagnosis uh, already helped a lot mentally, and at least I'm the kind of person that. I tend to go with a lot of rationale. So when I get some kind of rationale, that usually calls me down. And then I think after that, it was just seeing the small improvement. So I was also keeping like a diary all the time. So I could really go back and and kind of check, okay, what is my mood, let's say two weeks ago, three weeks ago, or two months ago, and and can I see there's a progress? Then of course, kind of matching that with my own feelings. It might be that there's no changes within one week, for example. But if you look at the long term, then you start to see that, okay, actually, I'm moving forward step by step. So, of course, there's moments when you kind of go back, back and bounce back. I think as a diagnosis, that was really for the moment for me that I started to believe that I will get over this. It will take time, but I will get through it. And how was it for you during this three plus one year in terms of life outside work and sports, mm. were you in a relationship or were some friendships or romantic relationships yeah. and what were the implications there of all this, what was happening yeah. with your body and thoughts yeah. and work? In mm. Yeah, I, th- I think what it cost, it kind of cost me to kind of focus only on two things that I can complete my daily job and then I can have enough rest. So it kind of guided a lot on also my life outside. Uh, I just made a decision to skip everything that was not very necessary, really focusing on the recovery part. So I can say that period maybe did some damage to some relationships for sure, because you you couldn't really put the effort needed there for that. But yeah, but it definitely kind of limited my life and I was living only through that. Okay. You are leading a company now for four years. Uh, mm. One is not only a community, but also a company. Mm. And uh, as a CEO to other CEOs, based on this journey that you went through with Ironman and, mm. and burnout and recovery, mm. what are some learnings that you have concluded for yourself mm. that you either wish you knew before or you would mm. love to share with others? Because mm. as we know, then yep. burnout for CEOs... Many people get into it even without running Ironman. Yeah, yeah. Well, for for me, I think that was when I really started to understand that I need to put myself first and my well-being needs to be there. If that's not the case, then it's it's really hard for me to lead others or, or help others. That changed my values in the way that 
I'm putting health and well-being as, as number one. I would say it had definitely a big, big impact. And, and, and if I think about the way I, I, I lead previously, maybe it was a lot more on the performance focused in many things. I think now I understand better that if the well-being is not there, then it's hard to actually get the results or the, the performance part. Change a lot of things in my thinking and also in my value basis. So what would you say to those CEOs who say and practice that you should work 80-hour work weeks to accomplish something? Mm. Of course, there's times maybe when you need to put more effort. But if you continue working rhythm like that, I, I think it will not lead to any efficiency nor a good state of uh, mind. I think it's better to measure working smart uh, and, and, and not measuring kind of the the hours you put in. So, so my message to anyone working with 80 hours is looking at what is that actually you do and then thinking, okay, are these things really necessary? Can I delegate these things to, to someone else? Are these really taking me towards my goal? So really being critical there and then looking at one's own health. Everyone is an individual. Everyone has a bit of a different ability to and, and pressure. So also thinking about how do you feel? How is your well-being? Be constant about it and not push yourself to the limit until it's too late. Okay. This is a very important point about putting yourself first. Mm. And at the same time, I think it's uh, for many people also a problem because like, how can I put myself first? Mm. I should lead by example, mm. uh, be the most diligent person mm. in the company, mm. do the most of the work and so on and so on. Um, so there's some this social conditioning around this, putting exactly. yourself first. Yeah. Uh, can we unpack this a bit more? So putting myself first in terms of how many hours I work and not to sacrifice my health mm. for the company, it's one thing. Mm. What else? Uh, what else have you put in practice uh, now when you look in retrospect, for example, mm. how you were working 10 years ago with other people compared mm. to how you do it today? Mm. Um, and why is it that you put yourself first good to those around you? Mm, mm. Mm. I think the, the big difference is that in the past I was thinking about short term, which leads that you need to execute every, everything right away. I think I have a lot more uh, thinking on the long term perspective, which means that not everything is something you need to do right now. Also prioritization, so really kind of before really getting to do something, really understanding that, okay, what is this priority level? And then about the importance of well-being, right? At least for me, it's, it's um, what I try to do as well is to also communicate to my team what is my state of being, for example. And I think for a leader it should be completely okay to not to be at your top form on every day. But it's really important to, if that's the case, then also to communicate it out. That, hey, you know, today is not my best day. These and these things I'm feeling. I think that is the best way of leading by example. Because then you're telling to the team as well that if you're having the same situation, then you're free to openly discuss it. So it's also creating the the culture in the company. That's also one kind of thing that has changed in my leadership. In the past, I was 
just uh, trying to be the Iron Man every day. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. This is very important. In many cultures, there's this principle that boys don't cry. Mm. Uh, from that comes that also leaders don't cry. Leaders mm -hmm. don't—they are like fortress, always on the top yeah. level. Yeah. Uh, if they need to cry, go somewhere alone. <laughs> mm. don't, don't share any vulnerabilities with your yeah. team. And what you are saying is something different that uh, you can share. Maybe for those who haven't tried it, uh, what are the implications? Because I know from my mentoring work with the founders mm. that the, the fear there is that if I become vulnerable, then they will think I'm weak and mm. then everyone will just step over me and ignore mm. me and not take me seriously. What yeah. would you say to this? Yeah, uh, I think it's a, it's a valid concern. But I think it comes down to the culture. How do you build your culture? If you build your culture that you as a CEO or a leader, you're like on top of everything and you kind of know everything, then of course an approach where you kind of show the uh, weakness, then yes, that might lead to something what you mentioned. But if the culture is is more supporting, it's open, it's transparent, there's empathy in the culture, then I think then when you're being open, then I think that's understood in the company and in the culture. It's not easy because it's a very valid concern and fear to have. But also I think then it's once you kind of take the first step, then you really see how it goes and it goes well, then I think that should be something, at least taking part of the fear. But I think it then comes to the culture a lot, how you as a leader can, can really show how you feel. So it's also about balance then. And on one extreme, you are not sharing anything about yourself. Another mm. extreme would be that you are uh, really coming up as weak and complaining uh, mm. all the time. So and somewhere mm. in the middle, there is this green zone where you are mm. strong, sometimes vulnerable. And this is easier for people related. So I would mm. assume that the way how you have built culture here mm. is that uh, people feel that it is safe and easy to relate to you and to mm. be open with you. Yeah, yeah. At least that's what I'm trying to do in, in my everyday leadership. If, if, if you're weak every day, then okay, you should think about is my well-being in the level that I can actually lead this organization. You mentioned also this that uh, part of uh, self-care is uh, to not try to solve all the problems at the same time, mm. which can be translated into to leave some problems unsolved mm -hmm. for a short or longer mm -hmm. time which means to be okay when something is not okay around. I think this is a mm. super important point also for, yep. for uh, CEOs, just to know what is necessary to solve and what is not necessary to solve, and then it just stays, actually. Yeah. So can you share something from your experiences regarding this? Are there some practical examples or some mm. more thoughts on this topic? Mm. Mm. How do you know? What is this that needs to be solved? What is this that can be just... Mm. Yeah, it was like this and it will stay like that. I, th I think it comes down to the, the main goals you have as a company, what you want to achieve. And then really thinking you have this problem and, and thinking that is this something that will take us towards the goal or not? If it's not taking there, maybe this is something that I can do later or maybe somebody else can do this. But then again, it really see a clear connection there that this is something taking us to that goal that we've set for Q2, then of course that makes it important. Um, 
at least that's one way to, to, to look at it. Uh, so through your strategy, through your goals, uh, and also having a discussion within your team or with your leadership team. Not making maybe the calls yourself, but really having an open dialogue there if people have different perspectives or do you see the thing same way. By the way, this is uh, now a topic about leading a team and coming to decisions together or individually. What's your approach? So let's say on one end of the spectrum, there's trying to reach consensus in all topics mm. and questions. On other end, there's this authoritarian style. Mm. Mm. I decided, I told to do so, and that no yeah. discussion. So where yeah. are you in this and why? I think I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. So, I mean, I, I don't believe in the authoritarian uh, way of leading. I think that's not really working anymore nowadays. But at the same time, I think it's a good point. You said that if, if everything needs to be this discursive and, and, and everyone needs to have a saying, then that might lead to a situation where you're not doing anything, you're just discussing. So I think it needs to be somewhere in the middle. If there's decisions that you clearly see that this is something that needs fast action, then you need to make those calls yourself. But if there's anything that kind of involves more people and let's say there's a strategic topic and, and, and all, all these things, then I think in, in the end, it's, it's, it's also by, um, to, to get the buy-in from your team. If you're making decisions just by yourself and then telling people that, okay, this is how we decided, people might still kind of do those things, but it's, it's a lot harder to get the buy-in and the commitment from them. So how do you get it? By taking people involved in the decision process one way or another. And, and I think there's kind of different levels to do that. You can have it all the way from going from a workshop and coming to a conclusion, or it might be a lighter version where you're just presenting some options already and then taking people's comments or ideas there. Whenever it's, it's clear that there needs to be a strong buy-in, then people need to be involved at least at some level. So they feel that they have had uh, the possibility to impact on the, on the decision that has been made. Huh. Now, continuing this thread, could you share an example when you made a mistake in leading people, making mm. decisions, mm. and what you learned from the mistake? Mm. Respecting the privacy of situations, yeah. so maybe not going into all details of it. Yeah. I'm more interested in the mechanics of the mistakes in leading people. Um, I think for me, probably the hardest one, the, the way to give feedback. And I, I think it's, if there's something that is, is bothering you, telling that right away. And I think the concept of candid feedback, where you're able to share feedback that maybe the other person doesn't like to hear, but in a way that the person understands that, yes, this could have been done the, the other way. Um, and still, there's two-sided two respect uh, towards the other uh, and, and what has been discussed. This concept of candid feedback, I've been trying to practice, but giving the feedback on the right time and the right way, that is, that is still challenging for me. So. What exactly do you, you jump on it on every occasion or that you postpone? 
I think for me it's postponing for too long. Yeah. Okay. And then what happens? Well, then I think you know it's it's maybe hard to go back to the example of what has actually happened. Yeah. It's not in the fresh in the memory. So I think it's harder to have that conversation because then it started to be that, okay, I remember differently, you remember differently. If you do it right away, then it's a fresh memory and everyone say that, hey, okay, this was what happened. So uh, confronting other people is a uh, hard thing to do for mm. many leaders. It's like, mm. in a way, it's absolutely normal thing, meaning that many people struggle with it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I assume that as you see this in yourself, then you have also walked already mm. quite a road to tra transform mm. this approach. So maybe you can share some tips from your experience. Mm. What has helped you to, to feel okay with being inconvenient to other people, to confront them? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, well, I think reading a book, for example, it's called the Candid Feedback uh, book. Yeah. I think that's something that gave a lot of tools there and ways to think of giving that feedback. Then I must say attending the sessions with Cuckoo program, the mentoring sessions and really going through some examples and, and, and kind of how could I improve my approach here. I think those mentoring sessions had brought a lot of different thinking to improve. And, and then just the, the daily practice. Once you kind of decide that, okay, next time I will change my approach more towards something like this, then really implementing that and, and then seeing how it goes, basically. And I think many times you don't get it right at the first time, but then you need to maybe iterate a little bit, a little bit but really test it with people. And I think a good way is also to ask the person that, or how did you feel about this way of giving the feedback to you? And then mm. you also get the, get the, uh, the reply from, from there, uh, not only to the topic or the matter discussed, but actually the way where the feedback was given. So I think that's also really important. Mm -hmm. So this means uh, if someone is in your network, is struggling with this critical feedback giving, they mm. could also ask you for advice how to do it better, because sure. I, I hear you've done sure. a lot of yeah. working on this topic. Yeah. Um, you mentioned also mentor, working uh, with a mentor and mentoring. Maybe if just looking on the essence of it. What mm. is it for you, mm. working with a mentor? What, it, what is it? Mm. Mm. I, I think as a leader, there are of course some topics that it's hard to discuss within your team, for example. And then some topics that you know, maybe you don't want to yet discuss with the board before you're kind of forming your thinking around that. So I think mentoring, at least for me, has been super valuable in kind of bringing these kind of topics b before you, you really plan the action and, and getting those insights that or outside perspective on the matter. That's one, one aspect for sure. Then I think at, at least I've been getting a lot of useful frameworks to develop my thinking and trying to put those in practice. Those have been really, really useful. And I think in general, mentoring should be about challenging yourself or, or like the mentor challenging the mentee. Maybe sometimes those sessions might be maybe too friendly, but 
at least for me, it's been really beneficial that with some topics, the mentor has really pushed me, pushed me to my own. Uh, I think that has been a really good way to, to develop. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's someone whom you allow to see yourself more mm. in a more open and vulnerable manner and whom you trust and allow him or her to also confront you. Mm. Uh, yeah. the things that they see in you. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the board. You are also in a very interesting situation that you have quite a lot of stakeholders around mm. you in, yeah. in your role leading Maria Zero One. Yeah. Could you share a bit um, what are your learnings in working with many groups of stakeholders mm. and many diverse stakeholders mm. in general? Uh, uh, of course, most uh, uh, scale-up uh, and company founders are in a role where they work with the team, then there are investors and part of them are in the board. Maybe there are also key suppliers and partners. Mm. And then sometimes one of these groups can go into block against each other mm. or investors going to block against each other. So yeah. uh, any learnings from leading various mm. stakeholders mm. around mm. you? Mm. Well, I think, first of all, the mission needs to be clear for everyone. So this is the mission in the community and, and getting the buy-in from, from different stakeholders towards that. Um, so, sorry to interrupt. So yeah. what you're saying is that you, to start with uh, getting alignment on the higher, highest level goal, that we, we everyone have a, the same. Yeah. We are on the same page about why we are here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if I think about Minus Zero One here and uh, kind of going back to establishing here the community, then I think that uh, defining the mission that we want to build this as the best environment and community for startups and other stakeholders, I think that resonated from day one. And then also part of the mission is that we want to build Helsinki as one of the startup hotspots in Europe, but also globally. And I think that's a mission that excites whether we're talking about investors or startups or large corporations, because if we succeed, that will benefit all the stakeholders in one way or another. So I think it starts from there. And, and then, of course, it's, there needs to be value propositions for all the target groups that vary a little bit, what startup needs or what larger corporation needs or public policy maker needs or expects. So part of my job is to kind of understand what are the different stakeholders' needs and then match the value that we provide as as a company and and community and, and communicate that with them. So, yeah, I think, you know, those are at least very important elements there in the job. We also have a time limit here. I will just ask you two, two more last questions. So it's already public information that you are uh, moving on on your journey mm, yeah. uh, to a different place. Yeah. And uh, I'm curious uh, if you could share with us what is your takeaway take in making such type of a decision that, okay, mm. I have been here mm. and now I feel it's time to do something else. Mm. So. Because uh, should I stay, should I go, is again a quite uh, frequent question to mm. founders, CEOs, uh, other yep. C-level executives. Yeah. So what have you 
experienced in making this decision and what you can share with the, with others. Mm. Yeah, it definitely wasn't easy to make this kind of decision because I think this kind of a job where you're leading a, a community and you're like the face out is, at least for me, it's it's a lot more stronger connection than working for any company. But then I think in the end, then it's putting yourself first. And then when I went through the decision making, understanding, realizing there's my learning curve is not steep enough anymore. So I want to learn new things. And, and, and then getting the feeling that, hey, this is probably the right time to move on. It's, I think it's also a lot of intuition. Like, what is your feeling, feeling there? Yeah. But also, of course, thinking about the organization, at least for me as a, as a CEO, then of course I want to think that what I leave behind is in good order. So also understanding that, okay, I'm confident to make this call now and uh, move on to the next chapter. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you're listening to your feeling, putting yourself first, and also taking into account the current organization's needs and uh, status. Mm. Yeah. Good, good pointers. Yeah. So to conclude, one last question. If you look back at yourself one to three years ago, mm. and let's assume there are many people who are in a place where you were one mm. to three years ago, mm. what would you give as an advice to yourself if you would meet yourself back then? Mm. Three years ago. One to three years, depending on... The... Yeah, a really tough one. Maybe delegating more things. If I think about three years ago, I had the tendency of being involved a lot. I wanted to kind of make sure that we get things in order, um, especially in the beginning when I started here. I think now I understand much better and now it's, it's a different different thing. But trusting people, giving them giving them the you know responsibility and believing that things will go the right way. I think that's something I didn't do well enough three years ago, but I think now I'm kind of understanding it better comparing to that time. Okay, this is super valuable advice, actually, because this is what sometimes even makes or breaks the company's success Mm. from the leadership perspective. Mm. It could be. Okay, thank you, Ville. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Frank.